Hello and welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. Today we're speaking with Shagan and Toby from Havenhill. Havenhill is a renewable energy service company providing solar energy to households and businesses across Nigeria. They're based in the capital city Abuja and have been operating since 2010. They were recently selected as one of the top 100 global energy startups for the startup energy transition, selected by the World Energy Council. They've installed over 200 kilowatts of solar in Nigeria, including two mini-grids of over 50 kilowatts, and are aiming to complete another two mini-grids in 2019. In this podcast, we speak about their experiences installing mini-grids in rural communities, the regulatory framework for mini-grids in Nigeria, Elon Musk, Barack Obama, and much more. Shagan begins our conversation by telling us about his background and how he entered the solar industry. Olushagun Odinaya is the name. My background is um, in physics and solar energy. Of course, over the years, I've gone to had additional you know, knowledge, certificates and programs within the renewable energy space. But specifically, getting into this field came um, from a very unpleasant experience. In 2009-2010, I went to a community in Lagos to see someone like a peri-urban community. While in that community, I met a young boy who was supposed to be in school at that point in time, but was in school. I had been part of an organization that does um, that picks children from the streets and put them in school and pay for their fees. So when you identify a child like that, you notify the organization, then they see ways how they can mobilize resources to get that child to school. So I spoke to the child and then he said his parents couldn't afford to send him to school. So I told him that I'll be back in two weeks and then get the organization to to do to do something about his case. So but it took three weeks before we went back there. By the time we got back there it was difficult identifying this young man. But someone offered to tell us what happened that um, the boy, his two siblings and his parents actually died some days before that. Right. And they died from carbon monoxide from fume from the neighbor's generator. And that, that completely broke me. Even though I had my background in physics and solar energy, while I was in school, I couldn't understand why my lecturer still complained about not having electricity. And so I was torn between either getting a job or going out to solve this problem. So I started out by you know, raising money from family and friends and buying solar lanterns and sharing it. After we did the first two giveaways or whatever, whatever you call it, we found it wasn't sustainable. Because I'm a young man, I couldn't still feed myself, you know. So, so that was where the idea about starting a for-profit company came from. So when when we started, we started as a as a power backup uh, company. So here in Nigeria, as as you probably know, the grid cannot meet the the demand from households and businesses. That results in a lot of uh, power cuts. And a few years after that, we then the solar you know, gained more popularity in this space, and then we expanded the business you know, into, into, into solar energy. We are, we are we are already proficient in, in deploying battery, ba- ba- battery backup already. So we just added uh, solar PVs to it. So we, we did that you know, for a couple of years you know, with um, households and, and some businesses, both in Abuja and, and across across Nigeria. And then two years ago, 
the off-grid energy, the, the off-grid space in Nigeria, you know, started gaining more, more popularity. World Bank started talking a lot about it, and even and the government, you know, started shifting their focus also to increasing energy to rural communities. So that was when we then felt, okay, it looks like there's a lot of opportunity here. And Shegun, you know, was part of Yali. There was a program then that solicited proposals on, on a, a social project they would like to, you know, be part of, you know, when they get back to, to Nigeria. So he, he applied for that project, you know, and USADF funded it at $25,000 US dollars. And th- that project was to deploy uh, in solar home systems, independent systems to households in uh, a community called Dakwa. Right? Is Dakwa or Dakwa? Da- Dakwa community in, in Abuja here. So we, that was actually our first project, our first right. off-grid project. Yeah. It, didn't, <laughs> it didn't end well because, uh, uh, so th- that, that was our first experience, you know, interacting with rural communities and, and how, you know, and increasing energy access in, 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 in a completely rural uh, community. In terms of social impact, it was high because, of course, we, we succeeded in, in increasing energy access, but in terms of uh, profits or, or uh, you know, uh, actual revenue collections, you know, because it was, it was a lease-to-own model, they were supposed to, you know, pay over a period of time and then it becomes here. Yeah. So um, we had some negative experience in that and then we started rethinking the entire model. That is, there, is, there, you know, is there another efficient way of increasing energy access, you know, without the kind of risk that, that we faced when we, right. when we deployed that project? And that was actually what got us into uh, the deployment of mini-grids. And uh, now we have two mini grids uh, in, in operation, and uh, over the next uh, three years, we want to, to do more in, in that space. Um, so, so it really sounds like Yali was a big turning point for your organization. It would be really great if you can just explain what that was, um, who influenced it, because it's obviously a very huge program for Africa, uh, and what that meant for you guys as individuals and for the company. So I think I was in India in 2013 for a solar energy workshop. And then I saw this uh, advert that next year President Obama will be inviting 500 young leaders from Sub-Saharan Africa to the United States for a six-week fellowship. And for me, I was like, wow, maybe this is what I've been waiting for. So that December, they put out the link of where the application will open. I put that link on my website and I was refreshing it every single day for like three months. By the time the application opened up, I jumped at it, filled the application, Got selected for interview, went for the interview, got selected, you know, as a fellow. So I got to spend six weeks at Dartmouth College in um, Hanover, New Hampshire, in, in the U.S. And that was a turning point because I met with professors. We were like, it was like a mini MBA. You know, they, they dived into our business model, our business plan. They helped us with structuring, how to grow, how to do all. And, and, and that month is an Ivy League school. You know, so we met with, you know, investors. We did mock pitch, pitch uh, sessions and all those things like that. Then we wrapped up the, the program with a one-week uh, town hall meeting in D.C. with President Obama. And luckily, I was sitting right behind him, you know, so, and I got an handshake. But anyway... When I was living in Nigeria, I said to myself, I must come back with something. It mustn't just be like every other trip. And so while we were in the U.S., there was this window that opened up for those of us who were in the business and entrepreneurship track. And there were just about 175 of us. There was $25,000 for 25 fellows. So we wrote our business plan. And because I've been doing business plan in Nigeria, I wasn't being selected. It wasn't a new thing to me. So we wrote the business plan. We, I submitted on the deadline. And then one afternoon like that, I got a call that I was selected. And we're very excited. We, we had the award in DC. 
you know. And then we did this solar home systems project that Toby mentioned. And then we just started, because for every project we do, we sit down, what are the lessons that we learn? And then we felt, and why did the project fail? We were doing manual collection. Mm -hmm. So someone has to go from house to house to collect revenue. Mm -hmm. And so you can go to the house today and then they say they don't have money. You can't remove the system from their, you know, from, from their home. So that, that was what led us to say, okay, if we go into mini grids, we'll have prepaid meters. People will pay for what they use. If you don't pay, you don't have power supply. And so in 2016, USADF, they opened up another application they called Off-Grid Energy Challenge. They didn't specifically say mini-grids, but because we've learned from the first lesson, we started researching about mini-grids. We now put up an application for mini-grid, and that's how Kibo was built. You know? right. And then from there, we just started building on that success. Amazing. So you've set up two mini-grids so far with USADF and about to start on a third site. Can you tell us more about the projects? What has the impact been for the local communities? How do you prioritize your potential projects and customers? All right, so the, the first one, uh, Kigbe, it's, it's located in Kigbe. Kigbe is a, is a, is a rural community in, in um, Abuja under the Kuali local government. And that system is a 20 kilowatt system. Total um, number of households, you know, when we get to full, full capacity, is 145 households. Uh, but currently, we are at, at about 101 uh, connections. And the second, the second community is Kwaku, just about four kilometers away from, from Kigbe. And that is a 30 kilowatt uh, system. Kigbe provided us that uh, learning opportunity because uh, mini grid was fairly new in Nigeria at that time. In fact, we built Kigbe before the mini grid regulatory framework was written. Well, we've seen firsthand rural rural migration. When we constructed um, the the project in Kigbe in 2017, the entire of our powerhouse around it were bare land. Now there are houses all around that place. So we've seen how people were migrating from the neighboring rural communities to Kibi just because there is electricity. We seeded the, a woman with about, um, yeah, let's say $100. We bought her a fridge, mm -hmm. and then today she can send her children to school. She can feed her family from the proceeds of her business. We've seen firsthand how people can save costs. The, the Baba in the community used to spend about um, 6,000 naira. 6,000 naira should be around, um, about around $18 on petrol every week to power his generators, to cut you know, people's hair. And now, that 6,000 is what he probably spends in a month, mm -hmm. you know, using electricity. Now, these guys now understand what energy efficiency means. Mm -hmm. You know, so when, once they are not using power, they shut, you know, their appliances and, and switch it off. You know, so we've seen impact firsthand. We've seen um, children studying late into the night. Electricity is not the only thing. We are looking at, in the near future, how we can collaborate with other companies. People may cook stuff because you still find out that these women still cook with, you know, firewood, mm -hmm. which is not healthy for them. We may not play in, in that space, but we, we, we've already created a platform for people who operate in that space to leverage on what we've done. But we've seen lives that have changed. We've seen people move back home. And we can imagine what those impacts would look like, what those numbers would look like when we have 50 mini-grids, when we have 100 mini-grids. There's a young man in that community who is now going to start a business center who will be teaching students how to use a computer because we're giving him computers, we're providing internet facility for him. So um, it looks small, but when you compare to where those guys are coming from, you see that it's a significant you know, milestone in their lives. And these are communities that have never, never had electric electricity mm -hmm. in their entire lives. 
great if you could explain to our listeners who might not have any idea what having no access to electricity means for mm -hmm. many people. They can't even imagine what that feels like. If you're unlucky, you might get one hour of power outage per year. What are the realities for a lot of the people you're working with? If we say someone or a community or a people don't have access to electricity, we are simply saying they don't have access to electricity. There are no grid lines, whether from the national grid or from anywhere. 80-90% of them use kerosene lantern or touch lights. Only a few of them use petrol generators and those those are the people who can afford it. Maybe the school principal, you know, the, the chief of the community. But majority of them use kerosene lantern. So they are used to darkness. Once it's 6, 7 p.m., business activities shut down in these communities. So I don't know how best to say it, but uh, they don't have fridge. They don't have freezers. They don't have television. No ice cream. You know, no Starbucks coffee. Anything that you need to use electricity to produce, they don't have it. Mm -hmm. And it will interest you to know that some of these guys have never even been to the urban centers. So they don't know what it looks like, what it feels like. So when you give them electricity just to light a bulb, they will dance, they will sing, they can go into their farm and give you a basket of fruit. They are just excited. They are grateful because it's like... You've given them the entire world. So it's fantastic to hear the impact you really have to people's lives from that bottom up. And, and I think it would be really interesting just to understand where do people go from here? You know, human nature, as soon as we've got the first thing, we want the next thing. What do people typically buy after they've gotten that first taste of electricity? And how are you seeing the communities develop and shape over time now that they've had that first taste? Yeah, so that varies across different customer types. On, on the household side, Nigeria is, is a country that cherishes entertainment a lot, right? I mean, entertainment, it could be music, movies, football is a religion. So all of that boxing entertainment. So the first thing people want to buy, you know, is a TV or some subwoofer. <laughs> because we had an opportunity from, from Cross Boundary Innovation Lab and in, in conjunction with Rockefeller Foundation a few months back to provide appliances for, for some of our customers. So it, it was a scheme whereby, because we understand that these are rural customers, they, they can't afford the upfront cost of, of procuring appliances. So that, that program was supposed to help them with the upfront cost, and then they pay in installment over a 12-month period. So when we ask them you know, for the <laughs> gadgets, they, they, would, they would love to buy. Like, more than half of the entire community wanted subwoofers. But we were so shocked that virtually every young person in the community wanted a subwoofer. And then the next thing was, was some DVD players and TVs and then, and then fans. Then on the customer, on the, on the commercial side, so they want more fridge. You know, we even have some people who, who want a, a machine you know, for, for some, a, a sawmilling and a machine because that, it, it's a rural community, so they do a lot of tree felling and wood carving and the like. So we wanted some machines to, 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 to buy that. So it depends on the, uh, on, the, on the customer type. So for the household, entertainment, gadgets, for the commercial customers, uh, the fridges and, and things that would help them make more money. Yeah, and going forward, uh, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, one would imagine that a rural community, a rural, rural customers you know, probably do not, need, do not have the need for internet and Wi-Fi and the likes, but 
one of the major demands that we've been getting uh, more recently is the need for either a telco base station or that if the telcos are not going to expand into those rural communities because it might not be commercially viable for them, they want us to provide them with some sort of Wi-Fi you know, service that they can at least browse. They have, some of them have friends in, in, in urban areas that they, they cannot keep in touch with because there is no, no GSM infrastructure, there is nothing. But these are the days of Facebook, right? WhatsApp and the like. So, so some of them have basic phones that that they can use you know, WhatsApp and Facebook on, but they don't have internet access. So they want us now to provide them with access to, to, to internet. And we are happy to take on that challenge uh, going forward. That's great, thank you very much. So there's been a lot of discussion within the industry about mini-grid systems versus standalone solar home systems. Can you give us a quick overview of the difference between the two types and what is your perspective or thoughts on it? For, for mini-grids, uh, mini-grids, it's, it's a centralized, system where you generate your power in a location and you distribute it to households within a particular community. Of course, according to the Nigerian regulation, there are three types. You have the mini grid below 100 kilowatts, you have the ones between 100 kilowatts and uh, 1 megawatt, and then you have interconnected mini grids. So for communities that are more closely compacted, a mini grid will be mini grid will be suitable in, the, in in such communities. But if you have communities that are dispersed, that the distance between one household to another household is large, then you might begin to consider a solar home system for such uh, communities. However, Nigeria is a very dynamic and unique market. We've also seen firsthand, not too far from where we are having this podcast, a rural community about um, one hour drive from here. They were given solar home systems about two years ago. But now they are asking for more. They, they want something that will power their fridges. They want something that will power you know, their deep freezers. They are done with the bulbs, you know, because solar alarm system is also limited in capacity. And then when you, when you give 50 or 100 solar alarm systems to a community, let's say, for example, you want to do maintenance. You, know, you have to go around. But for us, our business model is to focus on solar mini grids. In some cases, we'll have hybrid. You know, where we integrate diesel generator into it, depending on the size. For example, our 100 kilowatts project being constructed has a, a diesel generator because we have about um, 500 connections in that community. It's an extremely uh, big um, community. The Nigerian Electricity Regulatory Commission issued regulations around mini-grids in 2017. As you mentioned, this was after you had already started some of your work on mini-grids. Can you provide us a quick overview of the regulations and if and how they might have affected Haven Hills projects? Okay, so in fairness, I've even heard guys from World Bank say this, that Nigeria has the best mini-grid regulation in Africa. Well, after the the privatization of the power sector and then um, the distribution assets were sold to the discos, even though government say has 40% stake in the, the distribution companies. Distribution companies have license to you know, geographic areas, but they also have expansion plans. And so what the mini-grid regulation puts together is that if you find a community that is off-grid, that means that community is not served, is unserved, and is not within the five years expansion plan of a distribution company, and is about nine to ten kilometers away from an existing distribution infrastructure, that community is suitable for a mini grid. And so you can go into that community and build your project. And so the regulation also makes room for, for leverages. So for example, if you are building between a one kilowatt system and a hundred kilowatt system, 
the law permits you to identify your community, sign agreement with the community, do your system design, construct your project, commission your project, then go back to the regulator to get your permit or you register your project. But if you're building between 100 kilowatts and a 1 megawatt, you can identify your community, sign agreement with the community, do your system design, go to the regulator to get your permit before you construct. So that might have its own um, challenges. So you can actually start with below 100 kilowatts, get the permit for it, and then ramp up your production to 200, 300, or 1 megawatt. Mm -hmm. Then there's also the interconnected mini grid because there are, there are communities that are already within a, a disco's jurisdiction. By that I mean the disco already has distribution infrastructure within those communities, but those communities are underserved. And an underserved community is a community that has less than five hours of electricity in a day. In fact, there are a lot of communities <laughs> within Nigeria, even in urban areas that are underserved, that we can regard them as even <laughs> underserved because they get less than five hours a day. So that will require a tripartite agreement between the disco, the mini grid developer, and the community. And so in that case, you can, if, once that is done, you get the approval and the necessary permit from the regulator, and then you build your project. Now, in a case where my project is not within the five years expansion plan of a disco, so I build my project, and within the five years, the disco, by anything they decide to expand into my community, I'll get a compensation. They will buy over my distribution network. Mm -hmm. And then we can now decide to have an agreement that, okay, continue to serve these guys with your generation asset. Or they ask me to move out my generation asset. Mm -hmm. Apart from them buying my distribution asset, they also pay me a compensation equivalent to one year revenue that I should have made. So I can easily move out my generation asset to another community. But of course, the regulation is still new. It was passed in 2017. As we begin to use that regulation, as we begin to test it, we'll begin to see loopholes. And the, the, the regulators, they are, they are very flexible. They've asked us to come back to them if there are areas where they need to improve. So obviously, it sounds like you've got a lot of on-hand experience now in terms of developing specifically mini-grids. But so if you could learn from these challenges, what would be specific enabling regulations that you would look for? What would you change and how would you recommend for people who don't have regulatory systems in place yet, how they should start them from the ground up based on your experiences so far? Uh, yeah, I think that, that, that depends on, on, on the country. Uh, but uh, for, for Nigeria, if, if there's anything I would love to see change, um, it, it would be the one-year compensation clause, right? So um, I've, I've had a couple of investors complain about it because, I mean, as an investor, you put your money on the ground and you, uh, the typical payback period for a, a mini-grid is about five to six, seven years in some cases. And that's even for Nigeria. The, our, our Kenyan counterparts are talking about 10 years in, in, in some cases, right? So let, let's take six years as, as, the, as the payback period. And then after year two of operation, the disco expands into your community and you get paid one-year revenue. And that's it. If, by, by the time you by the time you factor in the cost of moving out your, your assets, you know, plus the cost that you will incur in setting it up in another community, plus the uncertainty, because when you set up a mini grid in a new community, it means you are not you are, you, you are, you are not going to have 100% uh, connections from day one. So investors feel that that one year compensation is too small, you know, for a project you know, that has a six year payback period. So it means that you are going to have to start all over again in that new community. So so we, so we feel like. Um, 
uh, th that could be something that should be looked into. That's one. Then two, um, right now the, the law states that you can build up to 100 kilowatts, you know, without you know getting a, a license and a, a permit and, and the likes. But in some other countries, I think in, I think in Tanzania, you know, you have up to one megawatt. Like 100 kilowatts is nothing, really. It's nothing, right? Especially when you look at peri-urban communities. When you look at communities whose needs, you know, you know outweigh you know, that that 100 megawatts and and that that 100 kilowatts. So so I would love to see a situation where that gets increased to at least one megawatt. If I can also add to what uh, Toby just said, while we have the, the confidence that um, perhaps the disco will not expand into those committees in five years is this. So we know that um, we are not paying the true cost of electricity in Nigeria. The electricity sector is heavily regulated. Maybe for those of us in the urban area, we should be paying like 50 naira per kilowatt hour. Currently, we are paying 26 naira. The commercial and uh, industrial pay like 30 something naira per kilowatt hour. But the rural customer, I think their tariff is four naira. Mm. So you expect a disco to leave customers that will pay in 26 naira and take power to a community where they will pay four naira. The cost of you know, you know, um, constructing grid lines or distribution network from city or whatever to those rural communities. You know, we did a calculation some months back, and we we just thought that it would take between 15 to 20 years for the disco to recoup their investments. Should they should they decide to expand into the communities where where we are in? So, so we we try to go beyond the, the regulation when the regulation states nine ten kilometers from the existing distribution. We, we do minimum 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers. Uh, Yebu is about uh, uh, I think 19 or 20 kilometers. Kikbe is uh, 24, Kwaku is 27 kilometers. So we look at that. So at the end of the day, you are sure that um, it's, not, uh, it's not going to be an attractive venture for the disco. And the disco has a lot to grab with. In my house, I barely have uh, 10, 12 hours of power supply. And I'm a very committed you know, customer that will pay for electricity. So I still don't have it. So why should you leave someone like me and take power to a community that they will buy $2 of electricity and use it for, for maybe two, three months. So it's not just uh, what, um, what the stress. But as we use the regulation, we will begin to see the loopholes, and then um, we'll begin to make adjustments. But we think for now we still have you know, the best in Africa, and then, but it can always be better than what it is. Great, thank you very much. We've been using a lot of terms like disco and um, I, I suppose distributed network systems. Um, can you give our listeners who might not know very much about the energy or electricity system, a bit of an overview about how the Nigerian electricity system is structured, how the separation between the discos, the generators work, and what the regulations are around that. Okay, before the uh, privatization of the power sector in Nigeria, and that's what we still have today, there are three major components. You have the generators, you have the transmitters, then you have the distributors. So, the transmission company of Nigeria, that's the TCN, is still 100% government-owned. It wasn't privatized. The distribution companies, so Nigeria has been distributed into 11 zones. So, there are 11 across the country. Government still owns 40% in each of those distribution companies. And then the generating companies, they've all been privatized. So, they are owned by private uh, companies who are generating power. But in between them, so when the generating companies, when they generate power, I think embed is between the, the transmission and the distribution. Mm -hmm. 
that's a Nigerian bulk electricity trading company. So, but the, gener the, gener the generating companies too, especially those of them who are gas-fired, they need to buy gas from the gas manufacturer. So it's a completely huge value chain, mm -hmm. but you see that there's no efficiency because at the end of the day, you have losses or maybe the, gen the generating company, like today, they say we have almost 11 megawatts generating capacity. No, 13,000 megawatts. 13,700 13, megawatts generating capacity. Mm -hmm. The transmission company of Nigeria has, I'm not sure, maybe between 7,000 to 9,000. So the transmission company doesn't have the capacity to take all the power that is produced. Mm -hmm. And the distribution company don't have the capacity to also take all the power that the transmission company is bringing. So you have the transmission company, they do what they call them. There's a name they call it. That they reject some load, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, they can't just afford to. So there's been not so much improvement mm -hmm. in growing the assets that they bought over from the government. So, and that's why it's interesting for uh, the mini grid players. Not just the mini grid players, there are now some regulations like uh, the eligible customer, the willing buyer, willing seller. So now there are regulations that makes the transmission company to sell directly to some classes of customer who don't have to go through the, the bottlenecks of dealing with the distribution companies. Mm -hmm. So but that's, that's just in a nutshell, the way you have the transmission, you have the distribution, you have the generation you know, pattern. Everybody knows the, but at the end of the day, you have the, okay, we didn't mention the end user as the customer. Right. So the discos, that's where the issue is. They are the ones that collect the revenue. Is when they collect revenue, they pay Embed. Embed pays TCN. I don't know who pays it, you know, the Jenkos, like that. And so, at the end of the day, maybe the guys who are supplying the gas, they don't get their money on time because when the disco collects, say, for example, $2 billion, they have an invoice of $4 billion. There's already, already a shortfall of $2 billion. They'll pay their salaries first. Of course. Then they remit. And so the debt profile within the power sector is billions of naira, billions of naira. That if nothing is done in another two years, you will see, you know, uh, collapse in, within, within the sector. We visited the mini grid sites at Kwaku Kigbe and the new one at Yebu yesterday. It was an incredible visit and showed us the progress that's being made and the learnings that are being carried forward. What would you say are the main learnings from those sites? As I said earlier, we, we learned a lot from, from Kigbe. I'm not sure if, if, if you noticed yesterday, but um, you notice that each of the communities are completely different from each other. Mm. And it looks like there's a, there's a progression, right? Like Kigbe is uh, just one for the five you know, households. And you will notice that there are not a lot of commercial customers and, and, and productive customers as well. So that's one, that's, that, that was our first lesson. Right, because we, we realized that. So initially, we thought we thought based on our pro, on, on the projections on our financial models and, and everything. So we, we, we felt like the household customers, you know, would consume the way a typical you know, urban customer consumes electricity. But we were wrong because uh, these customers do not have appliances. Even when you're doing the energy survey, energy audit, and everything, they will tell you things like, "Ah, when when with there's electricity, I would buy a TV, I would buy this." But the reality starts starts setting in because they just can't afford to buy some of those appliances. So we then we then realize that there is no way we are going to be profitable building mini grids if we don't have some form of productive 
customers or a, a community that has more commercial customers. So, and that was when we then, then we then you know, went to Kwaku and we saw, oh, this community has a welder. They have three, four barbers. You know, they have a lot of shops, chemists, and pharmacy stores, and so many things. You know, even though it's a, it's a, it's a rural community, There's a lot of commercial activities you know, was, you know, are currently on, ongoing there. So that, that's one thing that, that, that we have learned. Right? So a productive customer in those communities, are, so some of them are engaged in different, different kind of activities like rice milling, some grind maize, you know, some dehusk rice. For us as a mini-grid developer, that gives us some form of guaranteed revenue because that guy is making money from electricity from from that activity and he's already doing it he has a diesel generator which means he understands what it means to pay for electricity unlike the household customer who has never paid for electricity in their life and by the time they, they pay for the one for the first one or two months they start getting uh, they start realizing that hey this thing is expensive for me because their household um, income is not necessarily increasing but for a for a productive user because uh, he makes money from from his customers anyway so from the money he makes makes he takes that money part of that money to buy diesel or petrol so in this case we are we are replacing that diesel engine or that that mechanical engine into an electric motor so that he can then get connected to our grid and instead of paying for diesel it just pays you know, for the electricity it uses so we, we we target communities that are commercially viable and to us commercial viability starts from that productive load starts from you know productive load plus anchor load you know that that can that can guarantee some consistent revenue the household consumption pattern is a little bit it's not it's not as consistent as, as that of a commercial or a productive customer so that's that's the major thing we've learned from kigbe kwaku we are we, we are ramping up our, our remote monitoring system to be able to monitor all aspects of the mini grid so right now we can only track the distribution side and even that is not even as robust as, as we would love it to be so but now we we are investing in a, in a, in a platform that allows us to track everything from generation to the state of battery you know the temperature everything we, we can possibly track in the mini grid including voltage drops right there's often a lot of uncertainty about how to size a mini grid how have you approached this issue you've mentioned comments about productive energy use um, but you're also a partner with Odyssey Energy Solutions. It would be great to hear a bit more about them and how they help you with your projects. Okay, so I, I think that Odyssey is um, one of the best uh, things that has happened to our industry um, because um, you have a platform that brings developers, investors, and um, manufacturers together. Beyond that, you have a platform that, uh, for most of us, we, we struggle to use OMA, you know, in the past, but now it's integrated into this. You can do a, a whole lot of stuff, build your financial model right on Odyssey and share that project as a portfolio with an investor on Odyssey. Having said that, um, I'll address your question from lessons learned and continue from where to be stopped. Um, the understanding we have now, if we had it back in 2016, maybe we would have done five kilowatts of mini grid in Kibir. So what we do now is that when we get to a commit and we do our load assessment, we do everything, the products, everything, and then it comes to say, for example, 200 kilowatts. We will not deploy more than 50 kilowatts. We would we will allow demand to rise up to meet con uh, supply. When we did the initial analysis of Yebu, Yebu required about a um, hundred and something kilowatts, and then we said, uh, let's start with 45. We did believe that, um, okay, we would, and since all our metering system can, they have limiters, we can limit what everybody is using. And so as they begin to require more, we would know 
from the back end that this person is requiring more power you know when we see the the demand the intensity of that you know it will make sense at that time when we come back to me and say see what is happening on our site we think we require maybe additional 20 or 30 kilowatts you look at the past results you've been seeing 800 800 percent consumption you motivated to put in more money to the project and like when we just put the 20 kilowatts somewhere and we are doing maybe 50 percent or less than that so that's how we go about that even on odyssey when we put our 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 project on odyssey there's something they call low sizing factor our household we we, we take it down to 30 percent with the assumption that we're only going to serve 30 percent of the communities not that we are serving 30 percent of the community but what we are doing is that let's say every household requires a tv a bulb and a fan we only give them a bulb and a fan and take out the tv part and watch the appetite because this is what we've observed the first three months the demand is like this so what you see is an increase you know because there's excitement there's euphoria at that time oh, we have electricity they are spending the money they are buying the power then from the third month you now begin to see a decline in consumption because their expenses now does not you know meet up you know with what they were what they were earning and because we've not increase their earning capacity. You know, when you earn more, you can spend more. So their earning capacity did not increase, but yet their expenses had gone up. So it will come back to where it was before. And so we try to avoid that. We ensure that um, going forward, our productive and commercial customers are responsible for 60%, minimum 60% of our income, even though they might just be 10-20% of our customer base. So that they are the ones that will subsidize the electricity for their food customers. Perfect. And you're building your systems in a modular fashion so you can accommodate that increase in need. Exactly. So our powerhouse is, is built, like the powerhouse we're going to build in Yebu now, we'll be able to accommodate 200 kilowatts system. We bought, uh, I think, 1,200 square meter of land. That would take about uh, almost uh, 200 kilowatts, between 150 to 200 kilowatts of PV system. And then we can also have a carport, you know, standing over the, the building itself. So we do that. The inverters we use are inverters that you can connect in parallel so you can add additional inverter in the nice future, increase the charge controllers, the PV inverters. And, um, and then, but from the beginning, we'll build a standard distribution network that covers the entire community. So what we'll just be increasing is the generating asset. So we're just going to try and get to know the people behind the company a little bit better. Um, obviously, you understand your industry really well. And so what we want to do is just a few quick-fire questions, understand a little bit about you as individuals, and understand what motivates you, what inspires you, what keeps you going, um, and just try and keep the answers short and sweet, uh, and we'll see what we can do. So let's go with the first question. Who is someone that you aspire to and you in inspires you on a daily basis, and why? I'll give you two. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musk, because he's a crazy guy. I mean, I, I, I wish, I mean, I can't blame God for not giving me that kind of brain. I think I have that kind of brain, but it's just, it's just a crazy guy. I think that, that, sums, that sums it up, like how he sits down and conceives you know, all he's doing. You know, how easy is it to be you know, at the helm of affairs of two large you know, companies? You know? Three, actually. You know? And then Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban, but maybe not, not, not as popular as, definitely not, not, not as popular as, uh, and richer as, as Elon Musk, 
But uh, Mark, Mark inspires me a lot. Mark, um, I, I think I have, I used to watch him. I, I still watch him on, on Shark Tank a lot. And the advice he, he gives to entrepreneurs and his style of handling business, you know, he, maybe because I came from a tech, from a tech background. So, you know, he, he started, he, he made his money from tech, you know, so he used to be someone I look forward to, you know, sold his company to Yahoo, you know, and I'm still looking forward to a day when I'll, I'll sell a company for $6 billion. Well, I, I think... Um one is from the business, but he's no longer alive. I've, I've learned a lot from Steve Jobs, and I still do. I try to take as much as I can, you know, from the resources, the biography, and anything I, I can find, you know, around. Even when he was pushed out of his business, he came back, and we can see, because at the end of the day, I want to build a company that outlives me. Typical of Almost every Nigerian when, when when the founder dies, the community goes underground. That, that's not the kind of company you know we want to build. We are looking at a future where maybe to an extent employees will own a part of the company. And an, also another man who has inspired me and who continues to is Barack Obama. You know, he's been going around the world having town halls, town meetings. I don't miss any of those meetings. You know, I join virtually, you know, listen to him, his sense of humor, you know, he's a great family man. The way he communicates, typical of a leader. I may not fully agree with everything, but I love his style of leadership. So those two people, beyond um, other industry players who I may not want to mention their name, that I look at who they've done something amazing with their you know enterprise, and we're looking at you know them and seeing how we will do much better than than they do. So it's obviously a very hot space at the moment working in the solar industry. So what advice would you give to a new company trying to enter the industry and try and keep it to two sentences? If you build it, they won't come. And that's the, that's the, the other side of if you build it, they will come. Like Mike Anderson or someone said you know, in the past for, for the tech space, like if, you build it, if you build an app, users will come. For, for, for many grid companies... If you build it, anticipate that there's going to be a lot of challenges with the first one. You might not get that financial projection might not be right. It might not. It, it, it will not. The realities on ground are far different from you know, what you have on your Excel sheet. So if you build it, they won't come. I also think um, this is not the industry where you make quick money. It won't happen. It requires patience. We've been on this journey for nine years. You can imagine the. How we have to deny ourselves certain things. You can build an app and then tomorrow somebody is paying $1 billion. <laughs> no, no, for that. This industry that is asset heavy. You know, so, so it's not, uh, you, you have to keep investing and investing and then you have to see the future. So if someone is looking for quick money where or you can invest today uh, and, and make a 50% return in one year, it's not this space. So whoever is coming here must first of all ha ha have passion for people there must be something that is driving you that that uh, to see you know life change to see electricity you know people having electricity uh, ending blackout and all those things there must be something that is driving you and that should you know supersede whatever your personal agenda or ambition is second now i hope you don't mind me saying you're slightly older than toby but not by too many years but if you could go back to your younger self about 10 years ago what advice would you give to yourself so that you could start this journey in a different way or maybe not even start the journey at all? Well, I would have started early. Secondly, in 2014 or so, I met someone who wanted to take equity in Avon Hill and I said no. 
because my idea of business is that you should have 100% of everything. Until I went for Yali, and then I saw that, guy, you rather have 10% of a $100 million than have 100% of 1 million, you know. And so I, I found out that the biggest, the most profitable companies in the world are companies that are built on partnership. Mark is not the only investor or shareholder in, in, in Facebook. You know, several other companies like that. So I would have started early and then I would have sought collaboration. Okay, so just to, to finish us off, um, it's been really insightful to hear so much about, about yourselves and about your businesses. And, and what I'd really like to finish with is, is just a, a lasting message you'd like to leave for listeners on the image of Africa and Nigeria in particular. Well, Africa rising, Nigeria rising. Uh, it's uh, 200 million people, can't be wrong. <laughs> so this is, this is the next big market, Africa, and especially, of course, Nigeria being the largest in Africa. So, and uh, the opportunities, almost every industry in Nigeria, apart from the oil and, oil and, oil and gas, gas um, industry, uh, are still virgin. And I think either the World Bank or UN has a statistics that says by 2050, Nigeria will be three, 450 million population, with Lagos alone at 15 million population. That's huge. So it also means that um, a lot of opportunities in roads, in housing, in power, in all those things. So this is the next big market. Yes, there are a lot of news you heard out there about Nigeria, you know, saying Nigerians are this, but that's only a few. Maybe 0. 0.000. For every one bad Nigerian you see, there are hundreds, if not thousands of good Nigerians. Go to the UK, go to the US, see people who are topping their classes. You hear news of Nigerians doing extremely well. Nigerians are doing amazing things. And until you meet people like us, you will think every Nigerian is the same. It's an amazing country. We have strong value culture, value for, for, for life. We have respect for others. We integrity, you know, dedication, commitment. Nigerians work so hard. You know, they believe in dignity of labor. You know, so um, beyond that, whoever is bringing money to Nigeria, especially to even you know your money is in good hands thank you amazing thank you so much well thank you both for your time today it's been fantastic and we look forward to keeping in contact as haven hill grows and does more projects yeah sure. thank you thanks a lot. thank you for thank having you. us thanks gabriel thank, thank you. you that was our conversation with toby and shagan from haven hill if you have any questions or comments please visit our website at distributingsolar.com we have notes from our podcast, useful resources and contact details. We look forward to hearing from you.